I'm David Knopf, I'll be heading to Davis Station as a station leader, 2019-20. Send them to Antarctica for a, what's supposed to be a year and then halfway through say, hey, by the way, there's a global pandemic, there's no ships, there's no planes, you've got to be there a lot longer. We left Australia back in October 2019, well before the pandemic uh, was a thing, and uh, we've watched it all unfold from the safety of Antarctica. Quitting is not an option, so for all of us down there, there was no click your heels and come home, there's no magic solution to any of these problems. Our only option was to keep going to the end and get home safely. The scale of Antarctica, you have to see it to believe it. You'll never understand it looking at it on a TV screen or reading it about it in a book. Alrighty, g'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge. Bradley J. Driver, of course, you guys can call me Brad. And you may be seeing or hearing um, that we are virtual today. So one of my one of my favourite places in the world, my old home of Melbourne, is where our guest is located. And it's really exciting to get across the screen from him. He's got an incredible story, so I'm going to give him the intro he deserves. He's the author of a book called 537 Days of Winter. We're going to get into exactly what that means. He's a researcher. He's an adventurer. He's a former member of the Australian Army, and his story um, is quite unique, to say the least. He was stranded, isolated, um, for far longer than expected in the continent of Antarctica. Um, down there were the penguins in the cold, and let me tell you, I don't think I could last in the winter for that long. And we're going to get into today exactly how he survived, the mentality it takes, the resilience built, and all of the attributes required to go and serve a sentence in winter exactly like that so from your home your car or wherever you are give a very warm welcome to the one the only mr david knopf all right thanks for that's probably the best intro intro i've ever received so yeah pleasure to be here and thanks for having me mate the pleasure's all mine your story is incredible and it as soon as i've seen it it just clicked that i was like this is such an interesting conversation and you know before we dive too much into exactly what got you there the first thing that was I guess really on the front of my mind, you know, sort of seeing the title of your book and seeing the adventure that you've been on is what exactly does one learn in 537 days of isolation? Jeez, you learn a lot. And that was one of the things that myself, so it was a team of 24 expeditions. We got stuck there for the, the winter and then had to do an additional summer season uh, thanks to the pandemic and a, a whole range of other logistical impacts on on the Australian Antarctic program, mostly thanks to COVID. And what we really learned was knowing your own motivations and knowing what makes you tick and your own why will help you get through anything. And, and everyone rose to the challenge. We all had our moments. We all had our days where we just said, Jesus, when's this going to end? Are, they actually, are we actually going to get home as planned? Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty and focusing on the, the here and now, the, the classic kind of sphere of control side of your mental health, the right what can I control? I can control what I'm doing today, what I'm wearing today, where I'm going. And, and myself, I was the station leader. So I had a lot of control over, okay, we're going to do this next week or, or even just the season or the plan would dictate, all right, this is what we do next. Let's focus on that. Let's take it one day, week, month and kind of season at a time so that uh, when the end does get here, we're, we kind of we've left the place in, in good repair and, and we can go home as a team. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's so much to unpack here that you could almost be sitting here having a conversation all day. The one thing that I guess really pricks sort of my ears up hearing that and, 
you know, learning on the go as you're in that situation, obviously it wasn't planned, something that sprung on you at a certain point in time in that expedition. I had a recent guest on the podcast, Rich Davini, retired Navy SEAL, and Rich was speaking about the Navy SEALs and what makes them successful at, at what they do. And he said that the Navy SEALs aren't expert marksmen or, you know, they're not expert scuba divers or, or basically they're not even expert um, military men. What they are are they masters of uncertainty. And I think, you know, your past career in the military would definitely breed those attributes and, and traits into you. How much did that former career and that life in the Army serve you on this expedition with the uncertainty that you faced? Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to put it that, that really, I mean, we signed up for 12 months and, you know, and, and before that, the Australian Antarctic program had always run relatively to plan. There'd been issues in the last sort of 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 years of the program with different things happening, but they'd never had the amount of challenges that we faced uh, myself and the, the, the other stations and the whole program uh, in 2020 with, with trying to get everyone home safely and keep the program going. So there was huge amounts of uncertainty. I'd, I'd had a career in the army before this and also uh, a longer career with foreign affairs and trade, uh, working at Australia's embassies around the world, but again, in conflict zones and often working very closely and alongside Australian Defence Force. So you're right that my experience there had always been in my professional life, there really wasn't a lot of certainty that in the war zones, you were you know, at the whim of the political tide of the day, the, the conditions in the, in the actual conflict or uh, the periphery of the conflict itself. So you're always quite reactive. Now, you've always got a plan, and that's probably something that, again, that Navy SEALs and any other ex-military person would talk about is you'll always have, you know, three or four different plans on the shelf. Of like, if this happens, we do that. If this happens, we do that. And then if this happens, this happens, and this happens, then we do this, 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 and this. There's, there's always a plan for the uncertainty. It's one of the best ways to help deal with it so that no matter what happens, you are going to the shelf and, and kind of getting and adapting some sort of plan rather than just, oh my God, we've been extended for another season or, oh my God, this has happened and we've lost this asset and we've lost this. You go, oh, that's right, we've planned for that. And in this situation, we, we do X, Y, and, and Z. And that's something that I found helped me get through. The other one that I found surprising was as much as running a station was similar operationally to the, the way we worked in, in war zones or at embassies in terms of you know, helicopters and planning cycles and decision briefs and all the sort of back and forth stuff that you do to, to keep the operations running. It was my experiences running social clubs and having a really broad depth of experience in, in all walks of life from yeah, sporting clubs, social clubs, um, different employers, military, foreign affairs, broader government political side of things, even back to kind of school to try and manage the community and the team at different times and, and adapting your, your leadership style and for everyone else adapting their own personal styles to, to the situation became one of the more important elements rather than just saying, oh, here's the way we do this over yeah, nearly a year and a half of, uh, of life on an Antarctic station just certainly had to change how you did things and, and adapt and, and learn from each other and learn as we go to, to kind of keep going. I can imagine that in a leadership position like you were in, it'd require an incredible amount of empathy because whilst everyone signed up for 12 months, I can imagine there's people mm. with, you know, husbands or wives at home, with children, um, with loved ones, with, you know, maybe even situations completely out of their control with sick, you know, loved ones back home and that sort of thing. And 
to be away for that extended period of time would really dwell on a lot of people, I can imagine. And I only put myself in those shoes. Mate, I struggle to get through three months of winter here. Um, yeah. you know, I'm, a, I'm a summer boy. Like all those things start to weigh on you. And when, you know, when you're wearing thin, the worst of us comes out sometimes. But, but also with great leadership, the best can come out in us. Did you see shifts and stages throughout the course of that extended period where people went through those dips and, and found that little bit of what they need to find to power on and be that, that great member of a team or that great leader? Oh, absolutely. And look, we all had our, our moments. You know, the team did an incredible job to, to get through the end in a situation that none of us signed up for. Um, and that was probably testament to everyone's own abilities and, you know, credit to the, the, the team they recruited and, and we built as a group along the way. But at those, the, the thing was when we were told, hey, you're now going to have to stay a lot longer. We can't get ships or planes down to you uh, as planned. You, you're going to stay another summer season and it hit us like a freight train. And for as much as we could understand that as a group operationally, what we had no control over or the other side of that were the wives, girlfriends, kids, dogs, cousins, friends, families back home who didn't understand it. And for a lot of them, and certainly we all got a lot of questions from people going, well, why not this? Why aren't you home? You said you'd be home by Christmas. or you said this mm -hmm. and you're not here. You're missing another birthday, blah, blah, blah. And, and the other thing on top of that is remember a lot of this all happened during 2020. So people back home were completely lost as well, hoping that, oh, okay, I really need this other parent back in the family, I'm at home homeschooling two, three young kids or whatever it is. And, and all right, my husband or wife is down in Antarctica. That's fine. They'll be back at the end of 2020 and we'll get through this. And then we had to ring up and say, hey, by the way, not coming home as planned. I'm going to stay in Antarctica. Then you, you have to stay at home, homeschooling and working and, and keeping the family going for a bit longer. That was the, the part that was really outside of our control in terms of the leadership of the Antarctic program. And it was a really difficult side of things where you're right, having that empathy to understand how tough everyone's individual journey was so that as a team, we could start to understand and unpack, okay, the reason that say Brad's having a hard time today is because of all this other stuff back home. So yes, that's manifesting itself or he's displaying that he's, he's you know, kind of speaking out about all these other issues, but it's actually over all these other aspects in his life that he may or may not even want to talk about yeah. or discuss. And that for me as a leader became really challenging to, to know or and, and second guessing myself on when to pull different levers or when to push something, when to actually, actually try and manage underperformance or how to do it. And yeah, it got, it got really mixed results. The longer we went, the harder it became to deal with anything. And that's across the board from social aspects between different team members to, myself in the leadership role and the other members of the leadership team as well to have to deal with something became this, this challenge of, okay, what sort of response am I going to get? How close to the end of their tether is this individual or is this team or are we as a group? And the darkest and, and hardest times were in the second half of 2020, when we knew at that point, we knew we'd be coming home sometime in early 2021. We weren't exactly sure when, and the light, at the end of the tunnel was quite a long way away. We were supposed to have been back home. And at that point, we had some really difficult uh, Antarctic style jobs to do on station to keep the place running. So we're out in the freezing cold, you know, doing manual labor to just move snow and keep things going. And 
you know, people would snap it and myself included, I certainly snapped at different times. You have to deal with that after the fact and, and kind of make amends and, and get reset relationships and, and move forward. Is there something that you were able to, I guess, pinpoint in the characteristics and, and traits and personalities of those within your team that allowed some people to handle this better than others? You know, it just makes me think of, you know, you're just talking about there, the manual labor and those hard jobs and, you know, and, and the extreme climate that you're within. And it definitely brings out the most challenge and, and the most fight within us to get through that. You know, I think back to reading um, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And, you know, the, the whole, I guess, idea behind that book is, and true story for those of you who haven't read it, it's, you know, the people who had the bigger wires, like you said, or the people who had a bigger understanding of what their purpose is and who they are as a human got through those tougher times and those struggles more so than those that were, you know, allowed themselves to become victims of their circumstances, which is really easy to say from the outside sitting yeah. in, you know, in my puffer vest and my hoodie in a warm studio. Um, yeah. But I can imagine that you probably spotted differences in the way that people were able to handle this. Oh, 100%. And, and that was one of those things that you, you go, I remember at times thinking like, geez, what a, what a human experiment this is to take a group of essentially strangers. We all met in Hobart back in uh, August, September 2019, just before we sailed down. A group of strangers send them to Antarctica for a, what's supposed to be a year and then halfway through say, hey, by the way, there's a global pandemic. There's no ships. There's no planes. You're going to be there a lot longer. And hey, you know, you might have signed up for 12 months. And we all had our different reasons why you signed up. But at that point, you had to find a reason and understand your own sort of why and how you're going to get through to the end. And I certainly found those in the team that had a true sense of adventure in the historic sense of where in, in every element of their life, they sought adventure and that kind of that, that quest to always go a little bit further and always find the why and understand things rather than just, oh, here's how we do that. They'd always want to know why that it wasn't a kind of almost perfectionist, but at, at times, you know, okay, they, they'll just see it through. And even for myself as the leader, I found something that, that when I made this conscious decision and I was aware of this fact, I sort of, it, it helped me to then just be like, great, what an opportunity. It turned every failure and every challenge into a, a lesson and, and a thing. A was learn from your mistakes and always, if you learned something, you didn't fail. But that in the history of Antarctic, exploration and then in the modern era it's not really exploration but sort of antarctic operations no one had had to deal with uh watching a pandemic unfold from afar and mm. then no one in the, in the modern age of the australian antarctic program had had to lead a team for that period of time in those circumstances and then for other members of the team even to be part of that experience if you can make that decision and say hey what a unique thing to be part of we're now you know, there'll, there'll never be another year like this in our lifetime. It's very unlikely. And, and to say, hey, well, I just got to join a club of Antarctic expeditioners of which there are you know, only a few people get to go down there every year and even fewer get the opportunities and the challenges we had. And once you could, if, if you accepted that, I found you then rose, you could just easily be like, well, everything, no matter how, how hard this gets, this is, this is an opportunity and this is incredible. Whereas at the other end of that spectrum, and elements of your motivate of everyone's motivation was a pie chart and there's different categories and different degrees of it. But if your pie chart was a little bit too much in terms of, well, this is a nice stable job and I'll be home in 12 months. It's a, 
you know, steady government paycheck and I get to escape the world a bit and it'll be fun to see penguins occasionally. If you were motivated by that, you might've got through 12 months, but pushing it far beyond that, I think pushed a number of the team to the limit. And then to, to, you know, link back to the book as well, there's a key chapter um, right in the heart of the book called quitting's not an option where we really go through the ethos and the mentality behind what made some people rise to the challenges and others struggled it to really get through the, the crux of, of our predicament. Mate, I love that. And this is a quote that sort of come to front of mind as you were saying all of that there. It's, it's that pain is inevitable, suffering is a choice. And, yep. you know, ultimately everyone's experiencing the same things, but the way you look at it and the lens that you look at your situation through definitely changes things. And it sounds like you look through it, I can imagine, tested at times, but as you said, but you know, through a lens of gratitude and opportunity. And you know, I'm so glad that you're able to come away from that. And, you know, I'm looking forward to post-podcast, diving into the book and reading some of those lessons. Well, I'm really tempted to ask about post-exploration because post-expedition, because I know that coming back into the world in a really unique time is quite interesting. But I think before I do, I'm, I'm probably more curious to go to what exactly is the reason to go to Antarctica and, and go on an expedition, you know, because like you said, so few people do it every mm-hmm. year. And I think it's really rare for anyone to ever meet or speak to someone who has gone on that adventure. So I'd love to tap into, I guess, maybe your personal reason, but then, you know, the, the operation and the mission. Well, the whole point of it is science. It's, it's such a unique place. And I always get reminded, every time I do talks and, and I'm into corporates and schools and, and whatnot, and every time they do the welcome to country at the start, it always reminds me and I often segue it to say, yeah, it's great to acknowledge the first peoples of, of Australia and other nations with, that we're in. But, and then, you know, been there for thousands and thousands of years and millennia and tracing back the history of humanity from Mesopotamia and Africa and all these different things. We've only been going to Antarctica for 200 years. That's it. From the first sightings of whaling ships, you know, a couple hundred years ago, that's it. The penguins and seals and whales and environment down there was completely untouched by humans. And only in the last hundred years have we really started going down there in a big way. And the Australian permanent presence has been there sort of 75 years now without, we've got three main stations down there. So it's this snapshot of science that you can get down there and some of the ice core samples they're able to, to retrieve out of the glaciers. You know, you're talking nearly a million years old and hundreds of thousands of years of just time capsules of ice with compressed air that can, you can test the atmosphere of what the earth was like up to a million years ago and, and longer in different ways. This sort of science is just so cutting edge and so critical to understand in the history of our planet to predict the future of it and understand what we're doing to it and the impacts. And then you're mapping the, the glacial retreats, the, the glacial extents, the sea ice, the penguins, um, understanding the effects of climate change on the sea ice and then species like emperor penguins that rely on sea ice to breed. They don't breed on land. They need solid sea ice. Every year that's slightly different and changing. And, it, it, and it, you know, are there, what's the future of these species that, again, until a couple of hundred years ago, humans had never really come across. And now all of a sudden in that short period of time, the effects of what we've been doing with the rest of the planet for since the industrial age have started to have an impact. So that's the, that's the science side of it. The individual side of it for myself and most of the team and pretty much anyone goes down there. It's just, it's the opportunity to go down and even see it, to see Mm. icebergs, you know, little tower above ships and the stations and these ice cliffs, you know, hundreds of feet high, just straight out of the water, the scale of, Antarctica, you have to see it to believe it. You'll never understand it looking at it on a TV screen or reading it about it in a book. When you see the size of these 
glaciers and icebergs you're just blown away um and then seeing the seals penguins whales and everything in its own habitat just completely free range untouched out there having an absolute ball and th things like orca whales and everything in there um in their natural habitat are just you could watch them for hours as they try and mm. flip seals off icebergs and, and mess around in the ocean like it's their own they're an absolute absolute apex predator if there ever was one so that's that's the sort of that's one reason to get down there and certainly gets people going back. The operational elements of it are also fascinating. And that's why I was drawn to the role of station leader that, yeah, you're, you're running a station, which is a bit like a small town. You've got aviation, you've got maritime operations, so small boats and then a deep sea port when you, the ship comes in for resupply. You've also got a bunch of trades teams to keep the station running for plumbers to sparkies to builders, meteorological teams, all the scientists, like laboratory scientists, field scientists, all singing or dancing, all sorts of different stuff. But, but there's only at, at Davis Station where I was, um, there was only a hundred expeditioners. If you were running the same operation back in Australia, you'd probably have two or three times as many people. So you, you mm. do get this unique operational element of having to make do with what you've got and get it done. And and I often I think in a lot of ways, it can be a lot more efficient because you only have the resources you've got and the people qualified to do the things and then they'll get it done rather than if you had you know, twice as many people, it may be a bit slower, but you'd have more redundancy. So our biggest problem is that if, for instance, say one of the pilots, you know, trips over and breaks his arm in the gym, all of a sudden you don't have a pilot. And we, at times we only had two pilots out of three and the helicopters generally have to fly in pairs. So you, you start to go, Ooh, whereas back home helicopter, pilot breaks his arm you just get another one in and that's it you call so tom cruise yeah you call tom <laughs> you call tom cruise you, you know what mate I'm, I'm so i'm so fascinated because this is like i said this is such a unique opportunity because it is so rare that you'd ever hear of someone's first-hand experiences in this environment was this your first expedition to antarctica no, I've, I've been a few times. The first time I went down was was on a, a, a small sailing boat out of South America with a, with a bunch of mates who we went mountaineering and, and splitboarding uh, down the Antarctic Peninsula, which was yeah, wow. pretty unique, but a, a, an incredible opportunity as well. And it wasn't work, so that was the only that was the yeah. the only time I went down. It was just completely for fun. As, as hard work as it is, crewing a sixty three foot yacht with nine people, you work quite a bit to keep that going, and and certainly. Um, we're hauling bags as well when you're up you're kind of hiking across the glaciers which sounds magnificent but when you've got a kind of 20 kilo dead weight attached to your harness trawling sort of 20 or 30 feet behind you and just pulling you backwards every step of the way to sort of spread the weight out so you don't have a giant backpack like that gets pretty old pretty quick so it's, it's always even when you're having fun down there it's type two fun um, and then I flew down, to, I flew down to Australia's Casey station as part of the selection process to become a station leader with the Australian program, just to get a sense of the station and, and saw that. And then the, the third time I went down was, was to Davis as the station leader for what became the, the kind of long, longest expedition in, in modern history. And then I, since then I got home, I actually even went back again as a voyage leader on a, on a cargo resupply mission this summer just passed. So it's addictive. And every yeah. time that I've been down, it's to a different station and in a different capacity. And I think that's something that there's so many different jobs down there and different roles and different locations that are 
so diverse and so different. I mean, it's bigger than the ice sheet itself is bigger than Australia. So you think of how diverse mm. Australia is. It's not like, oh, I've been to Melbourne, I've been to Australia. Like, no, you haven't. You haven't seen huge amounts of it. Antarctica is kind of the same. There's, there's so many different parts. Um, but you'd be surprised how many people have been. Every time I talk to a crowd, I always ask, hey, who has been to Antarctica? And really? if not someone in the crowd, their uncle, auntie, brother, cousin, or, or best mate has been down uh, yeah, well. on a tourist cruise or... Uh, or worked at one of the Aussie stations. So it's uh, it's pretty it's hey, more common than you think. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, you know, I think there's something about that that's probably going to change now. People like you are sharing their stories where more people are curious to go and actually explore it and get an idea of it. You know, being there, I can imagine that you learn things. You know, the, the isolated nature of Antarctica, um, the, probably the simple yet brutal nature of that climate and environment would teach you a few things about the world. What would you say you, would you say you've seen the world different when you come back into society at the beginning of 2021? It, it gives you a different perspective on things. I certainly found, you know, down there, life's pretty straightforward, but it's also very critical. So if, if someone doesn't do their job uh, or any, if, if you don't work as a team to keep the place running and get it together, the impacts are immediate. And mm. that's, and you're also quite, I mean, we were there longer than expected. So we were okay. We had enough food and fuel to get by, but there was a lot of resources we started running out of. So it became quite efficient that instead of buying people Christmas presents, you're making them out of scrap metal or scrap, scrap timber. And you, you got very creative and that was something that you don't see back here in terms of society became pretty wasteful and single use. Now we're slowly getting better at some of these things, but there's so many other elements of modern society that are just terrible environmentally. So you're pretty good down there. And that's, that was hard to readjust coming home and seeing the amount of litter and masks and cups and all sorts of stuff all over, all over town. And the, the biggest challenge though, when I came back to Australia, we didn't get back till April, 2021. Um, now everything was, we're kind of in the eye of the storm of COVID, I think, at that point now, looking back. And everyone was struggling to readjust and unsure of what the future was going to hold. They didn't know it was going to hold more lockdowns. But understanding the trauma that everyone back home had been through was my big, biggest challenge. Here I was, and, and for my team as well, trying to readjust to the world and unpack what we'd been through and, and find our own place in the world. Everyone here had been through, especially in Melbourne, had been through these horrendous traumatic experience with the lockdowns and, and losing jobs or re-rolling or working from home and homeschooling with kids that I found that hard to understand exactly what life had been like back here, um, yeah. which was really different. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And that's, you know, like I said before, it probably requires heaps of empathy because in your head, the world doesn't really understand what you've just been through. Um, but then you're coming back into a unique situation as well. Yeah, it was, and that was something where I'd find at times when I'd sort of just mention, I'd start telling my story and a few people needed to get their own story out first. Yeah. And, and then you kind of have this funny thing of like, okay, all right, I'm just going to shut up and I'll let you, let you go because you clearly need to talk about it more than I do. And, and then when it, when it came to lockdown two or lockdown season five or whatever it was in late 2021, that was when I really sat down and, and wrote the book just to get it out for myself to go, okay, I need to, I need to unpack some of this and write it all down and, and started working with different publishers to try and 
make sure we wrote the right book to tell the right story and, and worked with a number of my team to fact check it and make sure that a just the historical record of, of what that was like for us to go down there watch the pandemic and then come home and readjust was was captured in a book and then the leadership challenges and the, the mental health challenges and everything um, we added sort of on top of that to give the book that that fully rounded picture of mm. just what it was like as an experience. Did you like, you know, in the process of writing the book, you, you hear guys like Matthew McConaughey, who with his book was going back on old journal recordings, um, you know, people leave voice notes or, or make video diaries at certain points in an adventure like this. Was it you going back and accessing the memory and speaking to crew members or did you have some sort of practice along the way? It was pretty fresh. So most of it was still in my mind. I did have my own journal entries and notes. And then geez, in the modern age, half the time, if I couldn't remember the date of something, I'd just go to my phone and look for a photo and be like, oh, right, cool, that was, you know, 21st of April or whatever it was. And there's a photo of that particular field trip or that particular event. And then you go, okay, great, no worries. And again, with email as well, you just go back and check your emails or your messages to... So there was a lot of those little things there. And then... Yeah. Like I said, when we got to the latter stages of the book, there was, it's obviously a very technical operation down there to keep the station running and to do a lot of the, the, the scientific work and other things. So I had a number of key members of the team fact check events and stories to be like, hey, this is what I remember. Um, this is what I've written. This is what I've got. Um, what are your thoughts? And, and really, I don't, it wasn't too many changes. Occasionally they'd come back and, well, they'd understand why I'd had to change it. There was elements that we had to simplify. You just can't explain mm. very, very complicated Antarctic operations uh, to someone that's got no experience in it in a short amount of time. So there were bits that were changed and they'd just say, yeah, that's that's how you would explain that and uh, that's fine. Matt, I love it. Hey, we've come to the part of the show which is now a consistent theme and I never had a consistent theme before, but about a month ago I thought, you know what, I really enjoy a podcast where they kind of always have this one constant note of the show that you can kind of look forward to. And so what I've done is I've crafted five questions that I feel are somewhat applicable to every guest and, you know, any walk of life. And it's almost the perfect conclusion to an episode, but it actually serves as a great trailer and I upload it separately as well. So I want to dive into those questions with you and go through them um, relatively rapid fire. So the first question is, if there's one book or one podcast that you'd recommend listening to or reading, what would that be? Uh, my recommendation, well, obviously my book, but uh, Into, Thin Air, Into Thin Air by John Krakow, I think is one of the best adventure books ever written. And also it's got a lot of controversy around it as well in terms of his account of things. So it, it opens up a can of stories for you to then delve into and read the different accounts. I think for anyone who's interested in a bit of adventure, that sounds like a maybe one to line up just after yours. The second would be, what's one skill that you'd recommend mastering that significantly improved your life? Self-awareness. The more you can be self-aware of your own actions and their impact on others and then be critical of your own actions in terms of giving yourself feedback to have that awareness. If you can master that, the, the world's your oyster. You know what, I love that you say that because a conversation amongst my group of mates recently is self-awareness is almost like a game of short-term pain for long-term gain. The more self-aware you become, the more you realise you have to work on and the more in your life that is almost red flag that you have to work through. But 
long-term, it serves you so well. And yeah, like you said, it's, it's an incredible skill to learn and develop. Sure. The third is what's one challenge and, and same thing, I may even know the answer to this already, but what's one challenge you've faced that's required the most resilience to overcome? Well, I mean, uh, being stuck in an Antarctic station during a pandemic was, was pretty rough, but in, inside that, that challenge was, was leading a team and even being part of a team uh, that didn't want to be there anymore. And we were all there far longer than anticipated with, with more challenges than we'd ever expected. And that was something, uh, a challenge that we didn't sign up for, but we were given. And then having to find your way through that and rise to the occasion was, was tough for all of us. And I love what you said in the episode, like finding your why is probably the biggest way to overcome that. Mate, the fourth one is, is there a daily habit or ritual that forms part of your routine, be it in the morning or the evening, that sets you up for success in life? Yeah, I like to just get out of, the, get out of bed for your own reason. Don't get out of bed to go to work. And for me, that's get out of bed and do 10 push-ups. Um, and it's that simple. It's, if you did nothing else the day, you did 10 push-ups keeps your arms nice and good and uh, gets a bit of blood flowing, throw in a few stretches at the end of it. And often at the end of that, you go, you know what, I'll turn this into a proper workout. I've got time. I'm up early enough. And that's a habit. I started when I was probably 15 or 16 when I, I knew I wanted to join the defense force. So started working on meeting the push-up requirements and just sort of kept going from there. All right. And the last question, question number five, my favorite question of this rapid fire segment, I think it's the most significant and it's, it's almost like a beautiful way to leave the audience. And it's, if you could share one message with the world and encourage them to act on it, what would that message be? Understand your why. And, and that's in every element of life and you'll have different reasons for doing different things. But if you know why you're doing it and really at the heart of why you're doing it, not to pay the bills. Like, why are you doing it? Why do you, why do you need to pay the bills? What's your actual why? The more you understand that, you'll just be able to do anything. And, yeah, it got me through the, the extended Antarctic expedition once I knew that, okay, I, I wanted a leadership challenge and that was it. Once I knew that and took that by the reins and said this is, this is a challenge beyond what you wanted and that's why you're here, so let's go, let's lead this uh, as well as you can to the end. Mate, I absolutely love that. And, and just on that quickly, do, do you feel like that why has changed post this experience? Is, is it something new or is it much of the same? My why now, I love this question, is, um, is to tell people the story. What, like, and either, that's why I say, yeah, I love going on podcasts. That's why I wrote the book. And it's why I love talking to schools and organisations and groups because my why is, is to tell this story. There's so many unique elements to it that, uh, that people can learn from and understand. And I think is, and, and more so that the things we got wrong as a group uh, and as a leader, the mistakes that it wasn't perfect. It got really messy at times. It was tough on, on everyone, uh, even down there and friends and family back home and the Antarctic program more broadly trying to work out how to manage the stations and the season. So it's a true story, and that's what's brilliant about it. You, you were talking about before with some of that, some of these, these themes that if it's perfect and polished or a, a great strategy of, okay, here's your mental health strategy and here's this and this is what you do to make time for yourself and understand this. Like, what do you do when you don't have any time to take time for yourself? You do not get a day off. 
And one of the key chapters is, as I said, it's called quitting is not an option. So for all of us down there, there was no click your heels and come home. There's no magic solution to any of these problems. Our only option was to keep going to the end and get home safely. And that's what's so unique about it. So my why now is simply telling that story in the hope that people can learn from it and, and take what we learned and apply it to their own lives or businesses or families or whatever. Mate, your story is outstanding. And I love that you've looked at this through such a positive lens. I love that you've come back and, and found all of these lessons and learnings in the failures, in the hardships, in the challenges. And, and like you said, that why now to share this story. And I believe that storytelling and conversation is so powerful. It, it has the ability to change and impact people's lives on a major scale. To know that you're out there in the world doing this, especially speaking to younger kids, the people that that almost need to hear this before those mm. challenges start to hit them. You know, you're equipping them with, with the attributes that they'll need to get through life. And, mate, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. You're an absolute gentleman, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your story. No, cheers. Thanks for having me. A great, uh, great podcast. I had a look at some of your back catalogue as well. So um, amazing stuff, and keep it up, and good luck for your, your marathon later in the year. I'll catch you down in Melbourne. Mate, unreal. Can't wait to have a coffee. Mate, ho- sure. hopefully it's a little bit warmer than the Antarctic winter by then hopefully (laughs) legend take care and actually before i go i will say to everyone listening right here or watching the show all of david's social links um the link to his website so you can go and access his book will be in the show notes and descriptions so make sure you get over there give it some bloody love get behind the man share it around remember it's not a secret share it with your friends tell the world and we look forward to catching it the next one take care awesome